Hello everyone and welcome to the sixth episode of Stars Oratoria, your premier Star Citizen podcast. My name is Senate Van Ryn, and I am currently broadcasting to you live from somewhere near, or maybe within, the Banyu Protectorate. As everyone and their grandson is aware, but for those listeners who don't get out much or happen to be around four or five years old, the Banyu were the first non-Earth-based intelligent species our ancestors, well, I say our, but half of you listening aren't human, the Banyu were the first non-humans to be met by humans just over 500 years ago. And after all that time, they still don't seem to like us very much. They tolerate us, but they just always seem... What's the word I'm looking for? Annoyed, thank you. <laughs> well, my producer isn't exactly unbiased or inexperienced with annoyance, which explains why you are so quick to think of the word. But I'm not just talking about humans. They're annoyed by you and your Jean kind and the Kurtak and the Vandul. Well, the Vandul annoy everyone, but maybe they just seem annoyed because they're so serious all the time. And hey, that's partially why we're here. We had some complaints after our last episode about the silliness induced by hydrofrost consumption. So while we're here doing what we do, I'm going to study the Banyu a little bit. Interactions are limited as their bioatmospheric needs are drastically different from our own, but I'll be taking notes where possible. These guys are like monks, I love it. Anyway, as you know, in broadcasting this show and its information, we are operating mostly on the fringes of legality, and as such, have to operate mostly on the fringes of space. So, as dangerous as it obviously is here, it's always a great help and service when those who operate within similarly gray legal areas offer their support by taking us in, escorting us to one system or another, or just shooting their guns at the really bad guys. Sometimes that help comes from pirates, thieves, smugglers, all friends of course, and in the most recent case, mercenaries. One mercenary in particular was able to get in touch with us, and we'll be providing housing and escort services pro bono. We will hopefully be hearing from him later when we open up the comm channels. Before that, in this episode we're going to be discussing, alongside our usual segments, more game mechanics, including some surprise ideas, mining, accounts and characters, and a light revisit to the topic of permadeath. For now, we'll take a quick break and return with the latest news and updates from Chris Roberts and the team at Cloud Imperium Games Corporation. Stick around. First up, as we do, the news. And once again, sadly, there isn't much news to discuss. The biggest development since our last episode was the permadeath info reveal, which we will address later. Outside of that, it's been all about the citizen cards. Green, bronze, silver, metal, plastic, platinum, unobtainium. I hope you were able to secure yours. And now that that's all over with, we can hopefully look forward to more info about the game itself. Perhaps by episode 7, we will have some interesting new tidbits to talk about. One great development that did spring from the Citizen Card extravaganza is that the overall campaign budget from us contributors has surpassed $8 million, as the original goal was $2 million, and we are now $6 million beyond. Hopefully that means Star Citizen will indeed be the game of our nightly dreams within the next two years. Many have asked, 
due to the massive increase in contributor funds if there will be new stretch goals and new features being added, but the official response is that the increase in money from us allows more developer freedom as there will be less of a need for funds from private investors who would have a larger stake and thus a possibly larger say in how the final product turns out as a result. In addition, I think considering the scale and the lofty ambition of the game in the first place, all additional funds should clearly go toward making the already promised game as solid and promise-fulfilling as possible. Onwards and upwards with the show, we kick off our segments the only way we now know how, with the segment called Ship a Show, in which we detail one ship per show, at least until we run out of ships, and that day is only looming closer. The ship we've chosen to highlight this episode is... The Cutlass from Drake Interplanetary. Regarding the manufacturer itself, the ship's development document has this to say, quote, Drake Interplanetary, ostensibly a legitimate company, it's an open secret that they manufacture cheap, well-armed craft favored by pirates to the point that they're named in that vein. Cutlass, Buccaneer, Privateer, Marauder, etc. End quote. The Cutlass itself has a max crew of two, a mass of 35,000 kilograms without cargo, and a focus on quote-unquote system defense, a.k.a. piracy. Straight from the document again, quote, Drake Interplanetary claims that the Cutlass is a low-cost, easy-to-maintain solution for local in-system militia units, the larger-than-average cargo hold, RIO seat, and dedicated tractor mount are, the company literature insists, for facilitating search and rescue operations. While it's true that cutlasses are used throughout known space for such missions, their prime task and immediate associations is with high space piracy. Cutlasses often operating in groups menace distant transit lanes to prey on hapless merchants. A single cutlass can ravage a mid-sized transport and a pack operating as a clan can easily take down larger prey. STOL adaptations allow these interceptors to operate off of modified transports or pocket destroyers, the most common warships that make up pirate caravans. End quote. So it's safe to say that the Cutlass will be a popular ship for pirates. But back to the stats. The Cutlass has an upgrade capacity of 5, a cargo capacity of 10 tons, two engine modifiers, a fusion maximum class, 1x TR4 thrusters, 16x TR2, with 7 hardpoints including 2 class 1s, 1 class 2, 2 class 3s, and 2 class 4s. By all accounts, the Cutlass appears to be a formidable vessel, and certainly a ship to avoid if you see in your travels. Unless you're me. In which case, you might already be traveling with some. Pirates love me. And I love pirates. When they're not bullies. No one loves a bully. But the pirates that keep my company and invite me to table are more of the Robin Hood type. And who doesn't love a good Robin Hood type? So that's the Cutlass, and that's the ship a show for Episode 7, which paves the way for our next segment called Show a System, which is just as, if not more, self-explanatory than the Ship a Show segment, the system we're going to highlight today is none other than the Odin system. The Odin system is a fairly well-known system. Most grade school children wouldn't have trouble pointing it out on a star map, but it's not the most hospitable. Straight from the comlink, quote, Odin is one of the oldest star systems visited by man. 50,000 years ago, it was a vibrant solar system remarkably similar to Earth or Terra. 
Since that time, Odin's star has degenerated into a white dwarf, rendering its planets icy nightmare worlds. End quote. Now, as we all know, stars do not degenerate into a white dwarf stage within 50,000 years, so many suspect scientific interference from a current or ancient civilization, the specifics of which remain unknown. Continuing, quote, Odin, too, is within the system's minuscule green band and is home to a variety of temporary UEE deep freeze expeditions, with the lack of surviving vegetation making it an ideal site for a weapons laboratory. Smugglers occasionally choose to call the system home, but their stays are infrequent. Odin is too cold, even for pirates and trained killers. Odin 2's moon, Vili, is frequently used as a corporate weapons testing range. As a result, something of a black market for weapons technology has grown up in the region. Much of it is junk, but pilots have reported finding occasional deals on discarded top-of-the-line military-grade surplus. There is a thick asteroid belt close in, likely the remnants of a planet which did not survive the star's failure. The UEE formally bans mining in the system, although little effort is paid to enforcing this edict. The field is largely uninteresting, but intrepid miners have been known to hit on substantive caches of gemstones, making their trips worthwhile. Odin 4 is a gas giant and home to a UEE-sponsored hydrogen rendering station and fuel depot. Fuel is remarkably cheap here for this part of the galaxy, although accommodations are notoriously spartan. End quote. The Odin system has three known jumps to the Baker, Helios, and Osiris systems. And that concludes our highlight of the Odin system and our show system segment. Before I open up the comm channels to speak with today's guest, I'd like to once again, and finally, at least for now, revisit the topic of permadeath. There are other subjects to discuss, but this show will be a bit different in that I will be discussing the other meaty topics with the guest instead. Alongside permadeath, I'd also like to touch on the subject of characters and accounts as they relate, if only marginally. First on the chopping block, characters and accounts. A popular subject with games like this is whether or not a person should be permitted to have one character per account or multiple characters per account. I'm going to play devil's advocate for both sides and my bias will remain neutral. The positives of having multiple characters per account are fairly obvious. Many people like to try out different activities and don't want one character to be associated with polarizing choices. If you're a pirate, for example, it will be difficult to conduct law-abiding operations in high-security space. So you create a new character who does all of your high-security stuff and jump between them as you see fit, and so on and so forth. Other positives are that you don't have to purchase and create a new account if you want to have more than one character. This would also be potentially unfair, as people who can't necessarily afford two accounts don't have the benefit of playing two characters, though one could argue that that's life. I can't afford quite a few luxuries with the measly credits we're bringing in right now, though I do miss my piano. Better days ahead. The negatives of having multiple characters tend to equate to the positives of having only one, and they also intersect with the idea of permadeath as a tool for creating meaningful consequences. The primary positive of everyone having one character is that it forces them to roleplay whether they are roleplaying or not. If they want to do pirate activities, then they don't get to benefit from having a character who can, for example, easily travel through other areas and perhaps transfer assets acquired with ease to the character who is unable to acquire them. With one character, your choices have weight, and as with permadeath, with one character your choices have consequences. If you want to be a complete animal and kill everyone you see, 
You won't be able to just jump to your reasonable character and pretend like it never happened. You will be stuck with the character you create until you either delete it and make a new one, or until you die, at which time you'd move on and have a chance to adjust your reputation as you see fit. As I mentioned, this is especially relevant now that Chris Roberts has finally elaborated on his vision for how death will be handled in Star Citizen. In episode 6 of this show, we addressed permadeath, and my opinion was that, as someone who enjoys the suffering of starting over time and again in games like DayZ, I didn't find it necessary or appropriate for this type of game. It is based in the future, it is sci-fi, and unlike in DayZ, where really the point is to see how long you can survive, and doesn't have much in the way of character-defining roleplay elements, Star Citizen was envisioned by many, including myself, as being a game where you can create a character, and that character can be involved in the history of Star Citizen as it progresses over the next 10 to 15 years or so. But before I jump to Permadeath entirely, it's worth mentioning that Daisy's model for Permadeath would be a great one if Star Citizen worked within a similar principle of having multiple servers. And this ties into the concept of characters and accounts, because with DayZ, your character is tied to a specific server. This mechanic could work, if private servers become a popular alternative with Star Citizen, which seems likely given the potential that mod tools have to completely reinvent the game how anyone sees fit. Back on the subject of permadeath. Now, my case is unusual, but others have their own viewpoints. I am the type who, when I start a new character, likes to essentially create and insert myself into a game. For me, this is the most immersive possible experience. The decisions I make in the universe are decisions I would make if I was really there. Thus, my persona in the game will be the same persona that runs this show. When the game releases, I will continue to run this show, but it will become much more centered around in-game events and in-universe fiction, of which we will all then be a part. If I die in-game, this show comes to an end. Right, maybe that's good news for some of you, but which one of you is going to take care of my delicate, fragile, Sean producer, ow, I mean piano, when I'm gone? So the verdict seems obvious enough, but what did Chris Roberts have to say specifically since our last episode? In his article titled, Death of a Spaceman, Chris revealed, well, quite a few things. It's a very long article, so if you haven't read it, A, you must be new to Star Citizen, so I can't imagine how you're listening to this show first, and B, there is a link to it in the show notes. Essentially, your character can die so many times, how many remains to be seen, and when their body can no longer be healed, they will die permanently. You will then continue on as whatever character you designate to receive your inheritance, be it your next of kin, your best friend, or your genre producer. Now, my bias won't remain neutral on this. My opinion, however, is in fact right down the middle. As I've mentioned, I love the concept of permadeath in other games, how it can create extreme amounts of tension, and how the risk-reward element can be so much more fulfilling than a quick respawn in your standard deathmatch. I also think the idea of inheritance, regardless of whether they can pull it off properly, is extremely creative and shows guts, if anything. On the flip side, I don't like the idea of my character, who is me, dying in the game. Having to play as anyone else would result in having significantly less of a vested interest regardless of who they are. I won't comment on it much beyond that, as the specifics of the mechanic have yet to be fine-tuned. It makes a massive difference if your character survives on average for, say, a month versus a year or two. So this is a subject that will be revisited more in depth in a future show, though don't be surprised if it crops up in conversation. But speaking of conversation, let's open up those comm channels. 
Our caller should be listening in, so expect to ring any second. There it is. Can we patch that through? Okay, here we go. Hello? Uh, hello. Guys, guys, shoot the asteroids. Oh, my. No, the asteroids. Oh, wow. These guys can hit the broad side of a flat cat. Uh, hi, Senate, is this you? Uh, this is Senate, yes. Wow, flat cats and asteroid popping. Sounds like it's pretty heavy out there. Is this uh, Draco? Oh, yeah, yeah, this is Commander Draco. Uh, Commander, of course. You got the plans that I sent? Yes, I did indeed receive the plans. It's nice to finally hear your voice after corresponding these last few days. For all the listeners, Commander Draco has proven himself to be a staunch ally of this program. He's going to be helping us stay tucked away safely in a Banyu system for a couple of weeks. But more than that, he was actually hired by certain people to bring me in. Is that about right, Commander? Yeah, my employer wants your head on a pike. You're lucky I'm such a big fan of the show. Uh, yes, very lucky. That's quite grisly. Well, it's nice to finally have you here. Oh, it's nice to be here. So if I may ask, what are you doing way out here besides tracking me down? Oh, uh, these newbies need some training. Uh, working with my uh, mercenary group. Uh, they seem to be improving, if I could say that. Well, I would imagine you don't seem like you go too easy on them. So it sounds like you have some downtime and can answer some questions. Oh, yeah. They, these guys uh, just need some time on the range. I got some downtime here. Great. Let's get to it. I, I know alongside the travel plans you sent me, you had some ideas tucked in there, and I was a pretty big fan of more than one of them. So I'd like to hear those as well. But let's start with what attracted you, Commander Draco, to Star Citizen. The first thing I saw about it was uh, the Kickstarter and the, the trailer, and I thought that was breathtaking that um they already had the carrier done and heck if they just threw me into an instance where i could be near the carrier or fighting around the carrier or fighting in the carrier i would have paid for that already oh yeah so that they're making a whole game in a universe around that i, I love that so much more right right <laughs> um and the the uh the graphics that are rendered in real time and all that uh nice technical stuff is perfect very perfect well, focusing on you, what is your gaming history leading up to Star Citizen that would make you as interested in Star Citizen as you are? I've played everything from fighting games to, to real-time strategy. Um, I recently got got money to start working on a, a gaming PC, and I was really looking for, for what was out there uh, besides what I was playing on consoles which uh, it came up to DayZ and the Arma engine that had to, it needed a lot of processing power. And I thought, you know what, time to start throwing money at a, a platform that can, can really start outperforming everything I've ever played before. Because I've never had that option. Right on. Well, what ship did you pledge for? And why did you choose it? Um, I pledged for the Constellation. And uh, I, I had uh, originally pledged for the Aurora, and I saw that the um, the progression that uh, RSI was taking, and it was it was really to the next level. I'd never seen anything like it before. Um, I've never seen anything that involved or um, where the community was so attracted to the uh, to the product that they just kind of threw money at it. And uh, I knew it was a project I wanted to be a part of, so I kept upping the pledge. And then eventually, I got my friends to to try and come in. They they didn't they didn't know if they wanted to make the same kind of investment that I did. Uh, and I said, well, you know what, you, you, you don't have to, I'll get a ship, we can all work on it, <laughs> and it'll be our thing. So, you know what, well, we're crewing a constellation, uh, and hopefully we're, we're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna make it a, uh, a new adventure, 
uh, in uh, in space. I think that's one of the things I look forward to the most is being able to have anyone walk around your ship as you're going through space. Uh, Star Wars Galaxies, I think, did it to an extent, though I never had the opportunity to play that one. But did you ever play Mace Griffin Bounty Hunter? I played it on the original Xbox. Um, I never actually owned the original Xbox. I, I got into that kind of late. Um, my brother brought the, the PlayStation 2, and uh, I had played on that for years. Um, and then Xbox and stuff started coming out. But um, yeah, I, I never actually got to play that game either. Mace Griffin Bounty Hunter was the first and only game I've played where you can pilot a spacecraft, stand up and walk around your ship in first person while it's in motion, and return to the cockpit and continue flying all without a loading screen. As well, you can land your ship at whatever derelict asteroid base you have to land on, and just like in space, stand up, walk off of the ship, and play throughout the level. It's a first-person shooter primarily, but I wouldn't be surprised if Star Citizen ultimately felt very similar to this game. And I've been wanting that mechanic for so long in a good modern game, and it's finally imminent with Star Citizen. Absolutely, that's actually what I'm looking forward to most about it. Um, that was, it's so simple, and uh, and yet that that feeling of immersion was uh, what was missing from so many other games. Like, uh, if if you had gotten to do that in um, in Star Wars Battlefront, how would it have been different? Um, having to walk around and repair your ship uh, as you're being shot in space. If you're piling in a transport and stuff, it certainly would have changed the game. Totally. Well, back to Star Citizen. I know you see yourself as a mercenary at this point, but with so many options, what do you think your primary character will be getting up to when the game finally rolls around? Probably mercenary, but I really plan to try out everything that they have to offer, even even if it's mining for a while, just because... I'm really hoping they make it fun, and that's what CR uh, Chris Roberts promised uh, to to make it fun, and it wasn't going to be a point and click and wait, and you could just walk away from the screen and have your your mouse do it for you or something like that. It was going to be active, and it's supposed to be fun. That's what I'm looking forward to. Well, I know you had mentioned mining in the ideas that you sent me. Did you want to expound on that a little bit more? When I came into the game and I started following the forums, there. There was talk um, from the updates that uh, it wasn't going to be a point and click. It wasn't going to be a sit there and wait for your ship to mine everything and take it into the hold. That it was going to be a really active process. And some of the thing, like the reason mining is kind of a boring process already, is like what can you do to make mining interesting? What can you do more than just click on a rock and have kind of the game take you through the process of mining because you know who knows how to you know really mine a rock who knows how to really prospect a rock right um but the thing is we have an opportunity here to instead of take that approach where um players don't know anything about what they're mining they only know the value that uh, of that which they're mining they could actually know um something about determining the value uh of an asteroid uh, based on scans that they might have bought from an explorer who passed by that asteroid. They might learn something about value or the best way to um, extract certain types of veins from certain asteroids. Um, if there's dangers of mining certain asteroids, gas pockets, e explosive gases inside, space creatures that might be uh, making their home in there. Um, something that, that makes space mining the deadliest catch, which is also... Yeah. The uh, it's the name of the thread by I have to say his name because I have to give this guy full credit. That would be Dunedin, 
or Dunedin um, for for the longest, most well thought out threads that I've ever seen on the topic. Uh, and if you've ever seen the show Deadliest Catch, it's essentially that um, you have to know what you're doing, and it's going to be dangerous even without uh, actual conflict there. I really like that concept because it makes me picture these roughneck guys who are going to be the only ones out there doing the mining because it's dangerous to do. And if it's dangerous to do, that means it would have to be a really involved and exciting process. So yeah, I really like the idea that it would be like the Deadliest Catch show. And I think the fact that it would be so dangerous might make it that much more interesting for people who wouldn't necessarily be interested in mining. Absolutely. <laughs> if that your asteroid is a... Uh is your combatant in this case. So maybe you're not interested in fighting players. You're just interested in taking on the environment and uh, all the uh, consequences and dangers that space can throw at you. I don't know if this is something that was in that thread you mentioned, but I just realized how awesome it would be if you had to, unlike any space game I know of, land on an asteroid and actually get out of your ship to mine it on foot. Since there is the first-person element to the game that we're currently only seeing rarely with boarding and otherwise in spaceports and hangars, where you won't be doing much besides chatting, doing this gives you a whole new type of environment to run around in as well. So it takes flying skill to land on the asteroid, and maybe it's not required that you have to actually mine on foot like Terraria or Minecraft, but perhaps you have to get out with your crew to set up a mining complex or drill implement of some kind before your ship could mine it from space. And if it's like Deadliest Catch, where it's dangerous... It could be unstable and you would have explosions going off and maybe little asteroids pegging all around you. I think scanners would kind of even it out. Like uh, if you have a, a small ship and it doesn't have the best, you know, deep scan of the asteroid, you might have to go down there and check it yourself. But as you upgrade yourself through the game, especially if you're going down the mining path, uh, as you upgrade your sensors, it should be less necessary for you to risk yourself uh, and your lives to uh, some uh, a random asteroid explosion. Well, not explosions yeah, like, that can kill you, but more just environmental activity. Oh, like on, heat vents and... Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, that'd be interesting, definitely. Since boarding isn't going to be something that everyone is going to want or be able to do often because not everyone is going to have a boardable ship, for starters, right. I think it would just give the developers another avenue to incorporate that first-person aspect. And not even making it something that you would want to avoid by upgrading your ships and scanners so much, but almost more where it requires sufficient manpower, which encourages teamwork and also facilitates economic and industrial infrastructure, and players who prefer that path. Right. Perhaps you start out as a grunt or a lowly prospector like Daniel Plainview in space, who has to go out and land on asteroids himself. Then you strike gold, so to speak, and can now hire out a ton of other people to mine for you. And it wouldn't necessarily have to be just the scanning for ore process, but more in the sense that you have to actually go down there to set up manual systems that need hands-on operations. Pilot the cutting rigs and stuff. Right, precisely. And in addition to mining, we know there will be asteroid bases as a possibility for players and guilds. So you could land and maybe manually drill out rooms, even if it was something as simple as the identical installations on every planet in Mass Effect. And then perhaps you could mine for resources around your base while you're living there. And if you're someone who is hiring out a bunch of people to mine for you, one of the modules or installations would be a hangar for everyone to park their ships, or for the big transport ship to park that brings all of your workers. This is all assuming that there are hundreds, if not thousands, of asteroids available to mine in Star Citizen. Right. But in your ideas that you sent me, you had also mentioned salvaging in first person as well, right? Or was that part of that thread? 
salvaging. People wanted to go and uh, look inside, actually wrecked hulls, and see if they could scavenge. Like Firefly. Yeah. So I, I always thought that that would be really interesting um, if you could just work that kind of menial labor uh, as a basic job. Right. Maybe not the, the most glorious, but um, to get yourself back into the, the missions part of it, that you could maybe be uh, an EVA grunt that has to slice part, uh, hulls or dig on asteroids. I thought that would be hmm. kind of fun. Right, yes. Um, as part of uh, shipless players, if you don't own a ship, well, I don't think there will be too much concern of anyone not having a ship, though it would be a neat mechanic if you did have to do something to get your starter ship. But I think first-person salvaging is another one of those things which would just be great. Uh, there would be a number of randomized wrecks, perhaps, and you have to work through them with welders and tools that could maybe be upgraded over time. But it's just another contrast to EVE Online, where in that game you have to fly up to a wreck in space, target it, and click the salvage button while you sit there and stare at the screen or alt-tab out to browse the web or watch a video. Not fun or engaging at all. And it's the same with mining. Star Citizen, incorporating first-person elements as it is, has the opportunity, if they're willing to put in the effort, to really flesh out so many activities that have just been boring to this day, but really shouldn't be. Right. But another great thing with the first-person mining goes along with the idea of imprisonment. Uh, Chris Roberts has stated that you can be captured and imprisoned by other players, in which case you might have to buy your freedom or a number of other scenarios. Many people, myself included, have been wondering how the mechanics will play out for the person who is actually imprisoned or sold into slavery. First-person mining would be a great way to expand on that. Instead of having someone sit in a prison cell for a few minutes while time artificially passes really fast... Forced labor? Right, yes, exactly. You could have them sent to penal colonies like Ruerpente in Star Trek VI, where you'd have to go mine ore for people for a set amount of time. At least it gives you something to do rather than sit there, if nothing else. Yeah. Not long, as people would not be pleased, but it's something that flows into real consequences alongside the permadeath aspect. Right. You're really going to fight to avoid getting captured, and your heart will be racing if you might be, because not only are you going to lose a lot of stuff that isn't insured but you're going to have to go work on this penal colony for 10 to 20 minutes. Sure, sure. Since there could be hangars on these asteroids or planets with prisons, maybe you'll even have the option to escape, either with brute force or cunning. With brute force, you could maybe take your mining laser to the taskmaster's face, or with cunning, perhaps you could use social engineering to acquire your way out. Or, as we already know, pay someone off with your sizable wealth if you have deep enough pockets. But enough about mining. I would say... Among all the ideas that you sent me, one of my favorites was the idea that a real person could maybe be the head of the UEE Navy. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? For, uh, I've never heard of a game doing this. Uh, I've certainly never played one that's done it. Uh, to have an actual person uh, leading kind of the mostly NPC fleet, but we know that players should be able to go into the military. So even if you just wake up one Saturday and you're your commanding officer or the admiral himself has come on saying that the Vandal are preparing a fleet for invasion um, and he needs citizens to join the ranks of the Navy to kind of head this off and uh, battle on fringe space uh, just to make sure that, you know, the, the secured systems are safe, even if it's even if it's just that. But if they go even further than that and decide to, to give this uh, man in charge set resources where he has to decide to to put carriers uh in this system uh have them patrol to this system 
um, have destroyers monitor those fleets and have ships working under them as scouts um, and even include players into these positions. Like uh, if you're hired to scout for the UEE Navy uh, with your with your smaller type ship, um, they might outfit you with scanners to do the to do the work for you. Uh, there's there's a ton of options there, uh, and because it's a head of the UEE Navy being a real person, uh, they can make mistakes. There can be holes in the defense, and it's also their job to to make sure they fight off um, whatever gets in. And it's kind of a, having a person to to lead you into battle, and I think that's a lot better than having. Uh, and NPC do that job. Uh, it, it's kind of different when it comes from a real person, especially a person who's been who can be latched onto as much as Chris Roberts and as much as uh, uh, I should say Sandy from from the RSI team. If we're already latching onto these guys already, and Wingman, I cannot forget Wingman. Uh, if we're already latching onto them already, it, it wouldn't be uh, a stretch to have players want to serve an admiral and maybe make being in the Navy that much uh, of a reward for players. I love this idea. I always enjoy in military games where my character can increase in rank as I progress, and being able to potentially have a fully staffed Navy with maybe some NPCs but almost all players I think would be amazing. This would give so much incentive to joining the Navy, as you said, as you'd also have to deal with the negatives, including the politics and having to take orders from someone who might be kind of a simpleton. So having a real person at the head of the Navy would mean that perhaps one day you too could rise through the ranks, but wouldn't it also require fairly large coordinated naval operations? Um, oh yeah, it's, it, that would be fully intended for the persistent universe play. Right, right. Um, even if it was, uh, if you have finite resources to work with, the admiral's not just going to throw uh, ships to the wind. He's got to he's got to work with what he's got. And even and when he loses those ships to to either player battles or uh, or to NPC battles, uh, that that the uh, the counter player or whoever's monitoring uh, how they generate the enemies in the system, he has to think about his ship losses, uh, whether that be players or or not. Uh, and if, even if he has to deal with uh, rebuilding his own ships over time, it, it's just a lot of aspects for him. It's a, a little bit more of a consequence for us players. Uh, and it definitely makes the universe a more dynamic place instead of, you know, the UE always has to counterbalance the threat. Right. The threat always has to counterbalance the UE. Uh, there's no chance for either side to, to either take some or lose some. Uh, right. No, nothing ever changes if it's just the UEE is in control and all-powerful, and that's how it will be now and forevermore. I always I always cringe when games come out and they say, like, you know, well, we have a dynamic universe, and there's two sides battling for control, and no one ever loses anything, ever. Right. It's like Planetside 2, which is kind of just glorified King of the Hill, where nothing ever changes, you're just trying to get points, and, and there's no narrative. You gotta, you gotta have a narrative. Um, absolutely. You could, uh, it, uh, not just a narrative, but a narrative that follows the universe that the players themselves are creating. If they end up losing systems, uh, that's part of the narrative. If they end up gaining systems, that's part of the narrative. It's not predetermined, which is 
even better in my opinion. Yeah, and it, and it would have lasting repercussions on other people who aren't just out there to shoot and kill people and capture points, but who are doing maybe economic business. And if, say, the Vanduul controls this section of space now, as opposed to the UEE, then it's no longer safe to do your business there as it was before the UEE messed up due to player choices. But it's a great idea, and it's definitely something that I hope CIG keeps their ears perked up for. But a couple more things before we wrap up. What are your thoughts following the release of Death of a Spaceman on the new mechanics as revealed by Chris Roberts? I'd have to say I find it more interesting, um, and it seems to me a fair balance between people who don't want to lose their character um, right away and people who want a little bit more, um, what's the word, you know, responsibility over their lives. Um, like where you have to take dying more seriously than you normally do. There are consequences. Right. And I really enjoy that aspect. And uh, not only that, but having to step into uh, the character creator one more time or whatever the uh, the method for character generation is and seeing my next in line or, or um, next relative or just inheritor in general. Um, it's really neat to be able to change your character that way and maybe you could take your take your character's life or lineage in a different direction um, it's like crusader kings son of a pirate becomes head of the uee council uh and owner of a destroyer battleship it's just you know the possibilities of you know creating lineages and having uh those kinds of things tracked considering what they said they were doing with the end game lore is just really interesting. Um, also I'm looking forward to the cybernetic enhancements that, uh, that they plan to be dropping on the characters when they, uh, when they bite the dust. Luke Skywalker's arm. Yeah. Stuff, stuff like that. So you're feeling pretty good for the most part about the concepts as laid out in Death of a Spaceman. Am I, am I going to be sad to see my first character go? You know, probably. But, you know, now what am I going to do? Am I going to sit there and uh, mourn his loss all day or take my new character into the, the next next step in the, in the lineage and take it in a different direction or follow in that character's footsteps? Well, I've been talking about permadeath in this episode, and I said I wasn't going to say much more about it, but... User Quack Quack on the official forum had a post in the absurdly long Death of a Spaceman thread, which laid out some concerns pretty well. Quoting from Quack Quack, I like saying that, quote, Reading the entire description, it seems we'll have two classes of players, people who focus on protecting their characters, and people who treat them as consumable assets. Quote-unquote preservers will be motivated to pay extra fees for advanced medical procedures, to regain lives, improved spacesuits, and personal shielding. Also, avoid high-risk situations like boardings, and dedicate one or more upgrade slots to survivability systems like auto-ejection. Meanwhile, people using quote-unquote throwaway characters don't have to worry about those fees and can go anywhere they want. I imagine two reasons why a throwaway character's ship would be more powerful than a preserver's. One, they can afford to buy expensive equipment sooner since they're not paying those extra fees. And two, all of their upgrade slots can be used on combat effective upgrades. End quote. Now, these are very valid concerns. In a similar vein, 
A risk is that people who care about their characters are going to be a lot more careful and hesitant about doing something risky, which often means not doing something that might be fun, whereas people who don't care about their characters wouldn't have cared about permadeath in the first place, as it's simply a minor inconvenience. So these are definitely aspects of incorporating the mechanic that I think CIG are going to have to factor in over the next couple of years. But before we wrap up, Commander Draco, on a lighter note, what games will you be playing for the next two years while you wait for Star Citizen to come out? Um, I'm waiting for the Daisy standalone to come out to get back into to my simulation kind of play with the permadeath kind of mechanics, but I also have uh, friends on the Xbox and other PC games that keep me going back to either Super Street Fighter 4 on the Xbox or Shogun 2 on the PC, and uh, those are always fun. And i uh, just been trying to master them for a long time. So hopefully that keeps me busy for the next two years. I know you had mentioned that the thing you were looking forward to most about Star Citizen is simply the fact that you'll be able to walk around your ship as it's moving through space. Sure. But what else are you looking forward to? What else excites you about Star Citizen? I definitely want to just have uh, my own crew, uh, whether that be friendly or NPC. I want to interact with them. and I, I want it to be on my ship. I don't want to... Uh, just be a ship in space and be a human on the ground. I want to be a human flying a ship in space and be able to walk around and go see my cargo, which is another ultimate promise of uh, of the funding campaign. And I'm just super excited about that. As am I. Well, Commander Draco, it's been enchanting. So many interesting and exciting ideas discussed. Fortunately, we'll be catching up in person very soon, so I look forward to throwing more ideas past you. Anything else before we temporarily part ways? Actually, I want to mention, uh, it seems that no one ever uh, gets uh, gets a question through to you at the end of this thing. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, what's up with that? I was really wondering what you were looking forward to. Um, right. Oh, no. Uh-oh. I told him not to touch that. Sorry, Billy's floating by the windshield again. I oh, guess wow. I guess it's going to have to wait till our rendezvous. Okay. I'm going to have to cut this short. All right, very well. Well, Commander Draco, thank you very much. Keep up the good work, Senate. You're, you're spreading the good word. Well, <laughs> I think it's not really... Bon you gospel or anything, but we do have some words. Some of them are good. I think some of them are good. She thinks some of them are good. But thank you to Commander Draco for taking the time to share some of his thoughts and ideas with us. And thank you in advance, Commander Draco, for offering your services and not sticking my head through a pike. Or a pike through my head. How gruesome is that? But enough about pikes and heads. In our next episode, we will continue to detail game mechanics and might open up the comm channels in an unusual way. More on that if it happens. For now, my producer and I are going to strap on some meditation robes over top of our specialized pressure suits, and then it's down to the surface to interact with the Bon Yu and hopefully learn a bit from their superior, serious ways. Super serious, superior, super serious ways. Oh yes, you're coming. I do all of your wacky genre rituals. People need me to be more serious, so I have to try something and I'm not doing it alone. You're a producer. This is what producers do. Produce me. My name is Senate Van Rijn, and this has been another episode of Stars Oratoria. See you next time. <laughs>